So um, we're getting ready to start season two. Yeah, that's uh, remarkable. I never thought we'd be doing seasons when we started this thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think, you know, I, I, I guess we wanted to make the distinction of, you know, another season because we're approaching this one a little bit differently than the first one around. What, what do you think? How would you describe some of those differences? My hope is that we have a little more pointed conversations, maybe around um, subjects that we haven't had a chance to address. I really appreciate the fact that, you know, as things were happening with COVID, as things were happening surrounding the death of George Floyd and all of those things that we were able to bring guests on that can converse with us and help process some of that. And I'm sure as as other things are happening in society, to the extent that we're able to get guests to converse about those things, we'll continue with that. But I mean, I think we've got sort of a, you know, a, a plan to have guests on who might stretch our ideas mm-hmm. about certain subjects. And they're not going to be necessarily all around the same kind of subjects that we've addressed so far. Mm-hmm. There'll be subjects maybe that are of, un- of interest to us or that we've come across that we think would just be interesting for our listeners. Right. Uh, and, and it's not necessarily with any sense of agenda as if like, let's tell the listeners what they should think about this, but more of just a, you know an invitation into exploring some of the subjects that you and I think like to explore and having guests on who can help us do that better. And I think because of that, like I, one thing I have been sad about in, in season one is that we've had some great content that we've cut for time. And so we decided to do a little bit lighter editing this season and mm. a little bit longer format. Yeah. Let's the, let's our guests kind of develop their ideas. And um, yeah. And, and so then I think we'll probably for the most part go every other week on our release schedule. Yeah. No, I, I think all the guests that I think we'll be having are, are very articulate, but you know, they may be stretching our listeners a bit in terms mm-hmm. of some of the subjects, not, not in terms of, of them being ideas that our listeners are incapable of handling, but, but really of stretching them in way like they'll be, they'll be going thick into some of these subjects, I think in ways that, that maybe, um, that might be a little different kind of a listen for yeah. folks, but I think it'll be really interesting. I think so. Uh, <laughs> I guess because, if we think it's interesting, that counts for something. So, <laughs> well, that, you're like, hey, and, and we're, I guess we're doing this podcast. Yeah, so we decide, right. right? <laughs> yeah. It's going to, it's going to be great. I think uh, the hope going forward is that we'd, we'd be able to have a little bit longer conversations with guests uh, and that we'd be able to kind of invite our listeners into those conversations. Mm-hmm. Well, we've recorded the first three at this point, the first one is you know, coming out this week. They've been really fun conversations. So, yeah. Yeah. So I think also, you know, if, uh, if any listeners have ideas of people that would be interesting for us to talk with, you know, feel free to let us know. We'd love to. Exactly. Love to and where, where do they contact us? Uh, at profsandrooms.com. And we're also starting a Patreon account. So if people want to support there and there will be some bonus content, uh, some of our conversations that maybe go a little sideways, <laughs> you can find on the, on the Patreon. Uh, so. No, that'll be interesting. That's not for subscribers then. You subscribe and then pay the monthly fee and you get the extra you content. Got it. That's what that is. Yep. It is? Yeah. Oh, look at that. Wow. <laughs> Perfect. Yep. Yeah, that's uh, cool. Do I get automatic access to that so I can oh, take a listen to it? That's a good question. It? I don't know. <laughs> 
Or do I have to be a subscriber? <laughs> that would be funny. I'll, I'll have to look into the details. <laughs> all right. All right. Yeah. I, I just, I like the idea that we're paying to listen to our own podcast. <laughs> exactly. Paying to rehear conversations right. that we ourselves yeah, had. Right. Like I, that seems a little like a, a vanity or something, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Like, <laughs> Would you spend your money on this week? I spent money on listening to myself talk. I'm, I just, I just wanted to feel like I was, you know, getting something of value. So I had to pay for it. So exactly. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Cool. So what's been a highlight for you this week? Well, I'll have to admit that usually the start of a school semester isn't on the top of my list of highlights mm-hmm. because it's hectic. Uh, you know, we got a lot of stuff that we need to prepare to get ready for it. And then it's kind of a whirlwind to get started. But this semester is maybe a little bit different. I had this moment, I think, when uh, my TA came into my office, walked in and to say hi. And it was like, all right, it's good to see students' faces again. You know, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we were in virtual learning, you know, in, uh, in the spring. I mean, and it's been five and a half months. It's been five and a half months since we've seen students' faces uh, in person in yeah. So that was that was nice. Although I, I will admit we're not really seeing much of their faces because of course they're all wearing masks, <laughs> and true. you know we're wearing masks or shields in the classroom, which is is very interesting. You know, but yeah, it, it's been a little bit odd for us. So I'm not seeing a lot of their faces. I can't hear them when they talk in class. But mm-hmm. other than that, you know, just being and well, you can't tell who's talking either, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, because you can't see any mouths moving. <laughs> it's so bizarre, isn't it? It's <laughs> very strange. But the highlight is actually seeing the students now. You know that's not to to minimize some of the concerns that are mm-hmm. I think are in place with the fact that we've got a lot of students on campus and it's going to be interesting to see how this goes. Um, but it was a highlight to see students again, to see my TA, uh, have them pop in the office and, and chat for a few minutes. I mean, those are, those are the kinds of things that you do kind of miss, even if it's right. a little hectic at the start of the semester. Yeah. Uh, how about for you? Yeah, well, it, it's the same. I, I was a little, I don't know, skeptical about how I would feel about the start of the school year, particularly because, you know, my role is different. And so it's, it's less of a part of my life this year than it's been before. Yeah. Um, I, I can't say I did not miss all the meetings that (laughs) (laughs) the the startup for faculty, but I, uh, I don't know, getting into the first day of class was just really, it felt good to be present uh, with people and, you know, I, and there's, I think in some ways, maybe we're appreciating it more because there's this recognition that at any, you know, any day it could end, we could all yeah. have to leave. And so I think there's this sense of, yeah, this is a special time and I hope it lasts, but we don't know if yeah. it will. Yeah, it, it is certainly strange, but yeah, it was nice to be back on campus and around people. So, Well, I'm really excited for our class together too, you know, because we co-teach this class on mm-hmm. contextualization, transformation and global theology, which is quite a mouthful. But but I had a lot of fun yesterday, you know, uh, co-teaching with you. And I think it's going to be fun to give that class a little different angle. Yeah, uh, I think we got a good group of students in there. I'm, I'm excited for that. Yeah, same. So what was a low light for you this week? I mean, it's got to be the stuff going on in Kenosha, uh, Wisconsin mm-hmm. with uh, Jacob Blake. Uh, being shot and then and then the young man going and, and killing the protesters uh, and and I think part of it for me is just the um, I don't know there's that that feeling of like oh man again like are we but but it's like I at the same time I was like of course again you know of course because mm-hmm. we have not actually addressed any of the underlying issues 
Um, so it's like, of course, here we are again. And then I think, you know, even in Minneapolis this week, seeing people kind of predisposed to be ready to, to vent frustration because the frustration is accurate, even though the particular thing that, you know, prompted it this week, uh, you know, was not. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I think the heaviness of that, and then along with that, and this maybe kind of you know previews my insight a little bit, but just some just great disappointment that I have in seeing how some some Christians have responded to all that. So yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. you know, just diving in on the heavy end of the low light there. But <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Uh, I'm not quite sure yet how to process everything myself. Like it's just, uh, you know, yeah. this happened five days ago, but I'd, I'd only kind of in the last couple of days heard about all the details of what happened. And uh, yeah, I'm in the same boat as you are in terms of feeling like, well, of course it happened in some ways, right? I mean, it's sad to even say that, but mm-hmm. are, are we not so naive to believe that, that everything all of a sudden magically has been fixed? You know, I, I, I don't think so, but it's, yeah, that's, uh, anyhow. Yeah. What's a low light for you, Ben? Well, you know, I, I, we have some friends that are really close to us. Some of our best friends, uh, they live not far from us. And we just, uh, we just heard word last night that, that her dad had just suddenly passed away. Mm. Um, this is my wife's best friend. And what, you know, wow. my, uh, uh, her husband is one of my best friends. Um, it was, yeah, it was just heavy stuff. I mean, it was very sudden. Um, and I, I, I remember thinking through a little bit of my experience, this, my, my father-in-law passed away, uh, in 2018 and he, he had pancreatic cancer and he was put on hospice. And we, we kind of, you know, when someone's on hospice, you kind of know that, it's not looking good. Um, I mean, that that was all pretty quick with your father-in-law, right? Yeah. Yeah. He got, he wasn't feeling well in like February. Um, and he was in Hawaii at the time and he came back home and I think he was diagnosed, you know, a month later or so with pancreatic cancer in March. And then he passed away in June, early June. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the thing about it was, you know, I guess we didn't really wrap our head around hospice much. And so we went to, actually there's my mother-in-law was going out of town for something actually to get some, some medicine for him. And, and basically, uh, we were wondering whether we should go stay with him or maybe have, you know, someone else in the family go stay with him. Cause we we're, you know, it was a little bit inconvenient for us to kind of uproot ourselves at that time and go stay at my sure, yeah. house. But we decided to go stay with him. And, 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 uh, my son and I were, we were the last people to see him. We, we mm-hmm. pretty much were leaving for the afternoon and we were going to be back later that evening to hang out with, uh, uh, or, or maybe the next day to hang out with, with my brother-in-law who was flying into town that evening. And then, um, once we left, my mother-in-law got home and said she couldn't wake him up. But, um, but the thing about it was, you know, it was just this, this, the abruptness, the sting of a loved one passing away. And even mm-hmm. that feeling sudden, even though, you know, he was on hospice, I just, I'm really feeling for, for our friend right now who's going through that. And yeah. uh, so that's just something that weighing heavy on me a bit. It brings back the memories too, with my father-in-law and, and um, yeah, it was just, it's just tough stuff. Yeah. 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 It's hard being, I mean, so obviously it's hard when that, happens in yeah. your own family, but it's also, you know, being reminded, you know, it's, it's hard. It's hard when a friend is going through a loss like that because of their own loss, but it also then, yeah, reminds you of losses that you've had. And yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And, I, and I've been 
fortunate, you know, I'm at this stage of my life of having a lot of the loved ones that I've known who passed away have been, who've been a lot older, you know, even in their nineties. Mm. Um, and so my father-in-law, uh, that was, a, that was a bit of a shock to sentiment and or shock to our sensibilities. And then, and then, yeah, just hearing things like this, you know, with, with our friend, I mean, it just weighs heavy. We, we, my wife and I were talking and we realized that like there's in our friend group, there's a lot of us who don't have two parents around still. Interesting. Um, yeah. And I, I, I'm the exception at the moment. I think not the exception, but one of the exceptions at the moment where both my, both my folks are still around, but, uh, but you know, you, you, you've been through that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I lost my mom and then uh, my dad remarried and then lost my stepmom. You know, yeah. a few years later. So yeah, that was all within five years. So yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how the, the grief kind of compounds. I also, I lost my grandparents when I was very young, mm-hmm. um, almost all of them. And yeah, so it's, it's interesting even seeing my kids have like my dad around and, and my wife's mm-hmm. parents, like, um, cause you never I, had that then. Huh? I, I know I really didn't, uh, not in the same way that they do. And it, it's really, it's like, oh, that that is a really special relationship, and I I regret mm. that I didn't have it, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, all of my grandparents are still around. I mean, that's just How about that? I, yeah. I, I mean, my family, it, it's just really crazy. Uh, when I was born, my grandma was forty, my great grandma was sixty, and my great mm. great grandma was eighty. How about that? I remember going to my great great grandma's funeral when I was like ten years old or twelve uh-huh. years old. And so that just shows, I mean, our, our, my family were having children very young and I, I kind of broke the mold there because, uh, we didn't have my son until I was, you know, uh, almost 36 years old. Right, right. So I kind of broke the mold there, but, but yeah, so yeah, it's, a, it's remarkable that not only are my parents still around, I think, but my, all of my grandparents are still around and it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a, a rare thing, I think for a lot of my, my group of friends. Mm-hmm. Oh, what? What's an insight for you, Ben, this week? Well, you know, I, oh, there's a lot of directions I guess I could take this in. And some of it is, uh, you know, there are things that you and I were talking about related to some of the cr- Christian response that you've seen um, online to some of the events. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll maybe let you handle that if that's the direction you're going in. Because <laughs> for me, I, I, I have now, now hearing the sudden news of, 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 my, of our friends, you know, um, father passing away. I, I've been thinking a little bit about death this morning and, and how... Uh, you know, I remember I had, there's this Christian musician that I really like, um, who he, he passed away many years ago now, but he wrote something once that kind of challenged some of the sentiments that Christians have about death. Cause mm-hmm. I think there's sometimes this just general dismissal of the badness and of the, of the tragedy of death among some mm-hmm. Christians kind of like, well, what's the big deal? You know, we believe in heaven or something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Or it, so, so somehow like the belief in the afterlife is supposed to mean that death is insignificant or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but he really challenged that. And he, he talked about the remarkability of all human persons as unique individuals in all the universe. And that mm-hmm. the minute that they're gone, we're losing this just unique imprint on the world. Yeah. And so I think that it's, I've been thinking about, I'm like, it's okay to feel that pain, that sorrow and that mourning. Um, I think some people want to maybe brush it under the rug and go, well, what's the big deal here? That person's in a better place or something like that, you know, mm-hmm. but I, I don't, I don't love that sentiment sometimes. I, I understand there can be some comfort to it, especially in people who are suffering greatly, you know, if they're on their deathbed and we, we don't want to see them in pain anymore. It can be a helpful thing to, I think to acknowledge like they're not in pain anymore. Right. Um, um, but there's this also the strand of dismissing the sting of death, I think, that is unhelpful. So I mm-hmm. think it's actually okay to to feel that sting. And, and yet at the same time, you know, I, I know, you know, one of the one of the one of the most profound authors of all time wrote this 
taunt of death. Yeah. You no, know, death wears your victory. Mm-hmm. Or death wears your sting. And it's not mm-hmm. because there is no sting, um, but it's because of the hope. You know, I think that this person found that there'd be a time when death would sting no longer. You know, right. so there is that. I don't want to be dismissive of that. And I'm not dismissing even thoughts of the afterlife as it relates to being comforted when a loved one dies. But I also feel like it's okay to live kind of in the pain. You know, mm-hmm. didn't Jesus say something about <laughs> blessed are those who mourn? Yeah, I mean, mourn, mourn with them. So mourn yeah. with both, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so a lot of ways, you know, it's like, well, there's, there's a special place I think. And for, for, for Jesus, when he was on earth doing his ministry and for, and for God, you know, to, to know and to live with people in their mourning and in their pain when the loss of a loved one or so anyhow, that's something I've been thinking about. How about for you? What's an insight? So something, and I I can't remember if I've mentioned this before. It's it's a thought that's kind of been in the back of my mind off and on through the last several months. I feel like there, so there's this pattern that we see. There's this pattern in the Old Testament with, with God's called out people, right? Where he has said, you know, follow me in such and such a way. And they, and they don't, right? They go off to the side. And, and he brings some kind of interruption. And then for a short time, they are soft in their heart towards God. And then very quickly, uh, you know, in the narrative, they return to a hardness of heart. Mm. And I, I think what I feel like I'm seeing in American Christianity, particularly white American Christianity, well, I should say in white American Christianity, right? That's where I'm seeing it. It's, Mm. it is this hardening of heart over and over again, where there are opportunities where we should be moved deeply by the suffering of others, sometimes by our own disruption, by our own uh, relative suffering, you know, and instead we seem very, very quick. And I feel like we're getting quicker at hardening our heart. And that is very, very frightening to me for in, in terms of what that means for the church and for the country, you know, because I think the group that is identified as the kind of white American church and particularly white evangelicals is influential, you know, mm-hmm. you know, again, what, <laughs> some people think that's great. Some people think that's terrible, but, you know, regardless, if that group of people has hardened their hearts against the things of God, that I don't think bodes well for either that group or for the country at large. I think this, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm just, I've just like, you know, and, and reading through some of the old Testament prophets and seeing these calls to like repent, like it's, it's almost like, guys, don't you see it is, is what the, the prophets are saying. Like, guys, don't you see it? Like, don't you get it? Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like there are voices today saying the same thing to the church. And I, and for whatever reason, we, you know, I mean, just this last week, you know, you and I were interacting with uh, trying to understand somebody, somebody had written something where they were basically taking up the position of, of justifying, you know, there, there was a, a character in scripture, a, a guy in scripture who was trying to justify himself to Jesus. And somebody today took up that side of the conversation. And I, and I don't understand that. Like, why, why would we do that? <laughs> that's, you know, yeah. it's like, that's not like, to, justifying ourselves that's that's literally the opposite of what the gospel invites us to do it's literally the opposite right <laughs> it's like the gospel is recognize that you cannot justify yourself and find your justification in christ and yet yeah. somehow the same people who are are preaching that gospel on a sunday are also preaching this other gospel of self-justification 
And oh man, I, I am deeply troubled by it. And not just self-justification, but also of a lot of anger towards mm-hmm. people and towards society and things that are going on in society and for, you know, governing officials who aren't handling something the way they would want them to. Um, yeah. I, you know, there, there's gotta be a place, right. For some cry for justice, right. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I'm getting a sense that it's like a, a different sentiment. I think you put it as hardness and I was going to ask you, you know, what, how have you seen that sort of hardness expressed? But I think you, you know, you kind of vaguely hinted at it here with this, this person who you felt was kind of justifying themselves. But I mean, are there other ways you're seeing this kind of hardness um, emerge in? I mean, certainly. That- I think the, so kind of the narrow slice of the church that I'm looking at, right. Is mm-hmm. this kind of white evangelicalism, um, you know, which I'd say we're part of, I like, but I, I'm looking at it and I, I think, there are times when we should be ashamed and we're not. Mm-hmm. And Jesus will deal with that shame, right? Jesus brings honor to cover shame. But that doesn't mean that the shame shouldn't be experienced, shouldn't be felt because the shame is real. Like, uh, I mean, this gosh, this whole thing with Falwell, right? Our lack of yeah. shame around that. Like, and, you know, not, I, I don't think either of us have been big Falwell fans ever, but, um, but at the same time, like this is somebody who's identified with the movement that I'm a part of, whether I want him to be or not. And I feel like we should experience shame, right? Because it's shameful and that's appropriate to feel shame. And instead we're like, we, we explain it away. We say, well, no, that's not us. You know, I, um, you know, similarly things with some of the racial unrest, um, where we're very quick to call out the other yeah, instead of to come alongside and listen to the other who's in lament, who's in mourning mm-hmm. very quick to ju- again, to justify ourselves either directly or indirectly, directly by saying I'm right, <laughs> you know, yeah. or indirectly by saying you're wrong. And yeah. Wrong for being angry, wrong for being frustrated. And there's yeah. almost this, this collective sense of calm down, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is not the appropriate response to no, people. To anybody. Who, like, so, so to your friend who just lost their parent, right? How would we ever think that that would be the appropriate response to that person? It wouldn't no, be right. No. And yet we, at this collective level, at this group level, are saying essentially that to, to a group which is in pain. And it's a group of brothers and sisters, you know, people who, who we have this covenant relationship with because of Christ. You know, we're not, we're not listening to brothers and sisters in Christ. We're, we're hardening our hearts. So for our listeners maybe don't know uh, Michael, well, what I'm excited about is like, he was here with us, you know, at our academic institution and we got to see each other. We got to chat, we got to grab dinners together mm-hmm. and, and he's not here anymore. He's in Georgia and, and I miss him. And I'm yeah. so excited that we're able to actually talk and, 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 it's just, uh, it's like, yeah, just having a friend on, you know, where some of our other our guests, you know, we don't know that well, where Michael, I think it's going to be fun because it's talking with an old friend, you know, <laughs> right. 
Yep. Well, I'm really glad to have with us today, Michael Farmer, who has a PhD in English. He's the co-host of the Christian Humanist podcast and the founder of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Uh, he's also a poet and essayist. You can find some of his work at the Front Porch Republic. And he has a 2017 book called Imagination and Idealism in John Updike's Fiction. Which I would recommend everybody not buy because it's $100 and a uh, kind of dry <laughs> academic book. But hey. <laughs> so it's for a, a niche audience yeah, then. I think they printed 500 copies. Last I heard, they'd sold about 100 of them. So I, I think I think in academic publishing, that's actually not bad. Yeah, that's not bad. That's great. So we wanted to talk with you a little bit today because, you know, the semester is getting ready to start up, we think, <laughs> all, all across the country. And it's an interesting moment to stop and reflect on what is the purpose of education? Uh, you know, what are we doing? And I think especially to check in for somebody who comes from a, you know, you've got the Humanist Podcast, Christian Humanist Radio Network, right? You're thinking about things from a humanities frame, from a literature frame, and just trying to think about why does this stuff matter? You know, why are, why are we studying these things? Um, what do we lose when we lose the study of that? Yeah, it seemed like it'd be fascinating to talk with you a little bit. Well, I don't know about fascinating. Hopefully not too much. I find it fascinating. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking to Stephen. You wouldn't use something like fascinating, would you? Um, yeah, I... I I don't know what people uh, think they study anything for anymore. My my impression from my years of teaching and just from kind of looking around at society is that that people largely go to college as a kind of certification. They they want to get a degree so that they can get the sort of job that requires a degree. And I, I don't know that, I don't want to say most people, but a lot of people don't give it any particular thought beyond that. And so classes outside of your major, which of course are almost all humanities classes for most students, end up being mm-hmm. just kind of a hoop you have to jump through in order to get the job of the DuPont paint or whatever it is, whatever it is young people want to do these days. I don't know why DuPont paint was my example. <laughs> no offense to DuPont. So, so if, if it is kind of this hoop you have to jump through, then it sounds like we have not, uh, there's no organizing principle where students are saying, oh yeah, I definitely need that or want that. Is, is that kind of what you were saying? It's like, it's like this add on. Yeah. Well, and I, I think just in general, Students see college as something they're expected to do, especially if their parents, and especially if their grandparents, although certainly their parents, if their parents went to college, they, they're expected to go to college. It's something you do for four years. You study as little as you can. You uh, you, you make friends. You, you do whatever it is you do at the particular college campus you go to. And there are things that are different at Crown than at some other places. And then um, at the end of it, you become a productive member of society. And I, I don't know that most students give it a whole lot of thought beyond that, although I, you know, I'm not an educational researcher, so I don't know that I can I can say that for sure. It's just kind of my impression. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you guys have dealt with students more recently than I have. Do, does that does that strike you as true that they're this this is just a, a kind of um, a factory belt that they're getting on to to head toward their their future as a worker? Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. I I also think there are a lot of students who probably are just looking for some sort of social life, Mm -hmm. you know, and they don't really know what to do after high school. They don't have a specific job lined up. So like, oh, I'll go to college and I can study something and meet people and have fun and and be a part of this community. And and that's not necessarily, I think, a bad reason entirely to go to college. What makes it such a bad reason in some ways is how much it costs them. Yeah. (laughs) Also, getting a job is not a bad reason to go to college either 
right? It's just, it's, it's not, it doesn't oh. work very well as an ultimate reason behind why you're living your life, but it's, it's, it's not a bad reason to go to college. It's interesting to me to think though, if, if those are reasons that people are going to college, when I think about like why I've been a professor, it hasn't been because I want to help people get a mm-hmm. job and it hasn't been because mm-hmm. I want to entertain them. You know, it's because I think that there's something that matters mm-hmm. and I want to try to help instill that in the next generation. And I wonder if there's maybe a disconnect in expectations there sometimes. Oh, I, I, and I think that's absolutely why most professors, especially most humanities professors, and Stephen, I consider you kind of on the on the border there. I know I don't know if you think of yourself largely as a social scientist. I don't know how but... I think of myself. <laughs> <laughs> that's let, let me let me put it in a less flattering way. That's why most people yeah. who teach uh, useless disciplines that that's what that's why they teach them right because they have found something here that is true and that's worth loving. Mm. And they want other people to see that it's true and to love it. So, so literature probably then really fits into that, right? Like that, I, I don't mean useless, but I mean the sense that there is something to love uh-huh. there. Yeah. And that it helps, it helps you love the world too, in its way, right? I mean, that, that when you, when you read a novel about London, part, you love the novel, but part of you also learns to love London and you love to learn the sort of people you meet in the novel and you love to learn the ideas mm-hmm. that are in the novel or however, you know, however you, you want to think about how novels work. But I, I think the great advantage of literature over a lot of other humanities, and maybe I'm just thinking particularly of philosophy, is that it's concrete. So it, it gives you not abstractions of people, but real, mm-hmm. albeit fictional people, and, and kind of teaches you to encounter them. Encounter is always the word I use when I talk about what literature does. You encounter a work of art, and it, it does something to you. And one of the things it does to you is it makes you love it. If it's any good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I like what you said about that, about what it does to you as a person, because that's something I think that drew me to biblical studies, mm-hmm. not just because of the religious component, but because of how narratives have a capacity to change us mm-hmm. in ways that just like maybe philosophy doesn't do so easily. And I'm not, I don't want to be dismissive of philosophy or even theology, but I think there's something about when we read a literature or when we read literature of any kind, really, that has that narrative component to it, it can strike us. It can, it can speak to us in ways I think that have a capacity for change and transformation that's subtle on the one hand and yet more profound sometimes than just theories. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's something to that? And, and, and I'm, trying to, I'm trying to take literature and I'm trying to take like even things like biblical studies and elevate it a bit to say, well, there is, there is this component like what you're saying of, you know, it, I love it and I want people to love it. But I'm also thinking, but I, I, I do believe deep down, maybe there's this capacity to impact us as human beings through narratives uh-huh. in ways that other areas don't have. Do you think that's true? I do. Have you ever read uh, Philip Sidney? He's a, I think, 16th century poet. He has a he has an a essay, a long essay mm-hmm. called A Defense of Poesy. And his argument is that poetry, literature writ large, sits in between philosophy and history. Mm-hmm. History is interesting, but it has no particular meaning to it. It's just a bunch of events that happen. Philosophy can teach you to be a good person, but it's very boring. <laughs> literature somehow combines the best of both of those things. So it, it, it is both normative and interesting. Now, I don't think he's being entirely fair to any of those disciplines, but it's, it's an interesting <laughs> Interesting it's interesting to think of the Psalms in that way, mm-hmm. right? Standing between history and uh, ideas. I, I found this in the last year or two that some of my attempts to teach things like at the level of principle has not connected. It's been too abstract for a lot of the students and that without moving, without points of reflection that are more concrete, whether that's through literature or I've been using films a lot Mm -hmm. uh, to do that, that it's, it's almost like, even though 
Yeah. I mean, and this is, <laughs> I don't know. It's like, I look at life and I look at the students' lives and I'm like, well, obviously these principles matter. And, but without the concrete grounding, there's almost no mm-hmm. connection for a lot of those students. They have to work really, really hard to find it. Part of the, part of the problem is that, that our, our culture is so fragmented that, that it's, it's hard to find something that all the students know that you can kind of use as a way in. And toward the end of my career teaching, I ended up just using the Marvel Cinematic Universe for everything mm-hmm. um, because it was something I knew that they all knew and that I knew. And it was the kind of only coherent cultural language we had anymore, as sad as that as that is, you know, but I mean, yeah, I I think, I think if, if education is really about learning to get people, get people to learn to love the truth, Mm -hmm. you can't, you can't start at the abstract stuff with most of them. I mean, some, some, some people really love abstraction. Um, but I think most people need a concrete way in. Well, you know, one thing you were saying here, talk about not being able to start really like with the abstract and something that literature does is it kind of gives it that flesh and blood kind of sense to it because it embodies Mm -hmm. it in characters. What's interesting to me is I was in high school and I had only been exposed to Christianity explicitly for, I don't know, less than a year at that point. Um, but we had a guy that came into one of our classes in high school and he started talking about how deeply and profoundly he was impacted by the novel Ordinary People. Do you know that one? I, I know the movie Ordinary People with Timothy maybe, Hutton. Is so it is it not a no, was it not a novel too? It maybe it was Well, anyhow, maybe it was the movie that he was talking about. But any, well, what fascinated me about it, so it was it was the movie or the novel Ordinary People that, that he had really connected with. And what struck me was, you know, I had enough exposure at that point to Christianity that it sounded so similar to the language that the religious folks were using in churches talking about how the Bible impacted them, which at the time I kind of mm. thought was was like sad or something like, man, this guy is really being that impacted by a movie or by a piece of literature. That's just fiction. But what I didn't realize, I think at the time was I was like, man, there's something just profoundly impactful about narratives where like this really, really, really spoke into his life. And I, th- I think I remember hearing from another person later about the, a similar impact that, that um, feel the dreams had had upon them. Interesting. The movie. Oh, interesting. And I think it was all about the father son relationship. So it's interesting, you know, when we're talking about like literature and, and, and the meaning of, of literature and education, education and its value, there is, I think, that sense of wanting to spread the love. But there's something about stories, even fictional stories, that just can sometimes it like expresses a person's experience that they that they weren't able to express themselves and then they can just latch onto it and feel like that's that's saying it. You know, I don't you, you do you feel Absolutely. that? You, I, we've, we've all had that experience, right? With a with a poem, I, I get it more mm. with poetry, just because poetry is so it's it's such a like ninety degree angle mm. to the world. You know, you're you're mm. kind of going in sideways, and all of a sudden it pulls the veil back, and you you see something that you've always known, but you've never been able to express. Like, what else is art for, mm. right? It's to show you a truth that couldn't have been communicated any other way. Mm. What were what are some poems then that have hit you like that? You know, I was thinking uh, just yesterday about this this early T.S. Eliot poem called Preludes, and he talks about um, the smells of steaks, and, and by which he means these like cheap cuts of meat frying in this London alleyway. And, and like you can just smell it, and the, the sadness of that just kind of seeps through the page. Mm. And, and you, you get this kind of view of the, the, the overwhelming tragedy of human life, but it's a kind of tragedy of mediocrity. It's not the tragedy of King Lear. It's the tragedy most of us live in, which is that life mm-hmm. is just kind of humdrum and banal. Hmm. And yet, when you write a poem about it, it stops being humdrum and banal, right? Because mm-hmm. all of a sudden you recognize your life in it or you put your life in it and it somehow makes the that terrible London alleyway 
uh, beautiful. Yeah, I, I like what you're saying because I, I had a similar sort of thought uh, on a little different lines, I guess, but with uh, Dostoevsky's opening to The Idiot. Have you ever read that? I've not read The Idiot. I'm reading The Brothers Karamazov right now. But uh, so what's and I haven't read that, but I heard that's incredible. So what's the opening to the idiot? The opening of the idiot, like the first page. It's I I didn't actually get all the way through the novel. So disclaimer, but (laughs) the opening page is these two people on a train, and it's just kind of describing both their experiences. But then Dostoevsky gets this point where he says something like, "But if the two had known at that moment that this chance encounter had brought together, or, or if they had known what was so remarkable about each other." they would have marveled that, that, that this chance moment had brought them together. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just one of those things where you're like, wow, you've got this just mundane train experience that all of a sudden mm-hmm. is illuminated by this little phrase of like, there's something remarkable about these two people. As a reader, you don't know what it is. And yet you're about to find out through the course of the novel. And that, that to me, I was like, the, the capacity to put that in words it, uh, put me in a sense of awestruck. But then also the sense of like, you get this just mundane scene and all of a sudden you're drawn in. I mean, it was just so, so fascinating the way that he worded it and did it. Of course, that's the English translation, I'm sure of what he originally wrote in Russian, but. Uh, but, but then the, the beautiful thing about that is that you, you'll now carry it out into the world. And the next time you're on a train or the bus or whatever, and you see people, that line will stick with you and you'll realize that they're not mundane. That there's no such thing as a mundane person, mm-hmm. right? That's it. That's exactly it. <laughs> well said. And it gives you a lens for looking, right? So you mentioned this thing about the train. And then I'm thinking of there's a scene on a train in the book Obasan by Joy Kogawa. There's a scene on the train in the book uh, Esperanza Rising. And, and like thinking about how these you know, again, very ordinary situations because of how they're framed in the plot or how they're framed, you know, by the author become really interesting. And then to, you know, see themes like that becomes a a lens for looking at the world. I I think I was somewhat notorious when I was at Crown for walking around the campus several times a day, just because I had to get out of that building. But I remember Mm -hmm. walking one day and it was, you know, very cold as it is in Minnesota in late November and very windy as it is in Minnesota in late November. And it's, you know, objectively awful, right? It's not really a great, great time to be walking around. (laughs) And all of a sudden the word came to my head, blustery, which is a a word Mm. from um, Winnie the Pooh, right? And Mm. all of a sudden Mm -hmm. this horrible, cold, frigid, icy day became like something out of a children's book. And that's, that's, uh, that's a small miracle if you think about it. It's it's about as far removed from the feeling of a children's book as you can be, and yet you're transported there, that's right. right? Yeah, by the word. And and now now that word attaches to crown for me too. You know, like because now mm. now I have that that experience, and it just kind of I, I don't know. There's there's something language does this right. If 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 you hear mm-hmm. if you hear it used well, um, it sticks with you and it changes the way you see the world, and then you know eventually the language gets stale again and you need a poet to put it in another way. But did you, did you have a moment where you were like, I know I want to get a PhD in English and wasn't motivated at all by the idea that you wanted to go on to teach at a, at a university or at a college or was there, was there something else with your experience? It was definitely that I wanted to teach at a college and it's definitely that I wanted to teach at a Christian college. I never had any, um, any serious motivation to teach at any other kind of school. I I really liked the tiny Christian college I went to in certain ways. And I thought Mm -hmm. that being on a campus like that forever. That was for your, for your undergrad. For my undergrad. Yeah. Being on a campus like that forever would be, uh, would be a, a pretty good way to live. 
There was something about the specifically academic life that appealed to me, the idea of having an office full of books and mm. like going to class to talk about them, you know, like that's a, mm. that's a remarkable way to make a living if you can do it, which increasingly people cannot. This, lead, this leads us to a little conversation, I think, about your blog post. And this was over a year ago now, or maybe a couple of years ago now. No, no, it, could, it was last year. It was I, last I think year, I, yeah. I wrote it about this time last year and I got to get published in September. So, so uh, what, what's the title of it again? I can't two remember. Two Forms here. of Despair. Okay. So yeah. So this, this yeah. leads us to your, your blog, Two Forms of Despair, uh, because you're talking a little bit about your motivation for why you, you went into the PhD program and wanting to work at a Christian college. Uh, but, but in your blog, you, I think you had a lot of reflection on your experience as a, as a professor and some introspection on some of your motivations about that. Do you want to like share a little bit about that? Or, I mean, we can certainly have our listeners go to the blog and read the blog, but I'd be fascinated just to talk with you a little bit more about your reflection. Mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time at Crown, which is obviously where I taught and where you guys teach, uh, being frustrated that I wasn't more successful. And when mm-hmm. when it became clear to me that I was not going to, to teach there anymore, and I should say that I, I left on my own free will, nobody pushed me out, or I, I had no rumblings that I was going to get fired or anything like that. It was just something I, I kind of knew internally I had to do. Although, I, you know, I, I don't know that I could tell you why even now, but uh, I, I still think I made the right decision. Anyway, I, I, had to, I had to wrestle a lot with what it meant to have that goal for myself, why I had that goal, and what it meant, um, what it meant to have failed to achieve what I thought I would achieve. And in, and in part, I think that's because I wanted the wrong thing, which is what that what the one form of despair is about mm. in that article, right? That you, you can despair of something that was not a promise to begin with. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, we, we should despair of getting the things we haven't been promised, you know? Like, uh, I, I'm never going to play for the NBA. It's not, it's not a bad form of despair for me to despair from ever playing an NBA, right? It's it's more of a form of right. honesty. It's, it's reasonable. It's seeing reality for what it is. It's seeing the promises you've been given by God as what they are, right? And and the question for me became, how do I determine whether the very real despair I felt toward the end of my time at Crown, whether that was that kind of despair or whether it was despair where I was just kind of giving up on life. And, and that article was an attempt to sort that out. And, and part of that involved mm-hmm. being kind of brutally honest with myself and with whoever happened to read the article about my motivations for being a professor in the first place, which were not entirely pure. And, and that, was, that was really hard to come to terms with because we all think of ourselves as very righteous. Mm-hmm. Which is actually another thing that literature helps us discover, right? Is the complexity of our own motives. Yeah, it really does. Was that, was that, a, was that a hard process? for you to, re- to reflect on because I think you were very brutally honest in your in your blog post you talked about some of the those motivations you even just mentioned you know that they were m- maybe not how, how did you put it maybe not the most pure um, was that a painful experience for you to reflect on those things to, to re- come to that realization and if so do you do you feel like um, do you feel like if you if you went back and did it over that it would be a different experience for you having known what you know now after this reflection and I'm also curious what you mean in, in terms of the motives like what what you did discover about them one thing i settle on in that is that in some ways becoming a professor was a substitute for being a rock star which was the Mm. great goal of my teenage and early 20s years you know Mm. and that's a stupid goal um and and going into education because you want to be worshipped and adored is a stupid Mm. thing to do now i don't think i entirely did that um i i i think 
I don't, I don't think I'm being immodest by saying I was pretty good as a professor and I cared about my students, but deep down in me, there was that. And if there hadn't been that, I probably would have been happy with the level of success I had. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. But, but the truth is I wanted to be recognized, you know, and you know, I'm not even willing to say that it's wrong to want to be recognized, but I do think that if you want to be recognized and you're not, you don't get to sit around feeling bad about yourself because of it, you know? Mm-hmm. So when you talk about success, this is success like as being known in your discipline or being known nationally or what, what kind yeah, of... Yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly right. I, I, I wanted people to know my name. I wanted to, I wanted to, mm-hmm. to work at the best possible school I could. Again, I always wanted to teach at a Christian school. So maybe I wanted to work at Wheaton mm-hmm. or, um, or Gordon back before Gordon kind of went off the rails or wherever. But I, I don't know, it, it, you know, but because we're all these kind of hopeless mishmashes of motivations and ideas, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't make a lot of sense when you put it into words, you know, and, and maybe that was part mm-hmm. of what I was trying to do with that article is like try to figure out what I was, what I was doing. The, the one thing I did make sure of before I quit is that it wasn't just despair making me quit. Like that, that mm. it was right for me to do so, even if I didn't entirely understand why. So I spent a lot of time thinking about it and praying about it. And, you know, I think I talked to you guys about it months before I, mm. months before I turned in my resignation, because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just doing this because, oh, I didn't get as far as I want, so I quit. And it wasn't that. It was like there was something for my... You're not like, I'm going to take my toys and right. go home. I, I didn't want to leave with any kind of bitterness. But there was something in me that that knew it was time to, to do something else, even if I didn't know what that mm-hmm. was. And still, to some extent, don't know what that is. But the article itself only happened because the editor of Front Porch Republic, Jeff Bilbro, knew that I had quit, asked me to write an essay about it. And... Oh. So I did it and I didn't edit it. I wrote, I wrote it very quickly so that I wouldn't have to go back and kind of deal with what I'd said. And I just sent it to him and let him kind of piece it together in a way that was coherent. So um, mm. I'm, I'm very thankful to him for that because I am proud of that essay. And I think it's it certainly gotten more, um, more interest than anything else I've ever written. It really resonated. Uh, yeah. For me, I just seeing, and it's been quite a while now since I've read it, but I remember that it was almost like this breath of fresh air, you know, it's like, okay, (laughs) you know, and, and provided space for me to look at myself. Even I I think I got that reaction from some other people. And I, I think that's because we all believe in Christian higher ed. And so we don't want to believe that it might be coming to an end. And, and part of what that essay is about is, is whether or not, the, the system of Christian higher ed that we all know and love is really going to be around that much longer. And so I, I, I think mm. there's a lot of, there's a lot of energy in the Christian Academy that goes toward not vocalizing that. And so <laughs> when somebody, when somebody, and I'm not the only one who's done it, but when, when people are able to vocalize it, I think people who are still inside it feel kind of uh, a kind of horrified freedom at that. Yeah. Almost like being seen, yeah. right. In a, but in a oh. good way. I, I mean, I think that that comes to this question that I was wanting to ask you about. There's this question for me of, so, so there are reasons to try to keep Christian Hired going that I think are not really worthy. Mm-hmm. Like there, there are bad reasons to keep it going, but I'm curious from, you know, from where you sit, when you think about something like studying the humanities within Christian higher ed, like what possibilities open up? What, what is there that we might lose if that type of institution goes away? To make Christianity at its best can, can kind of form a common language among the disciplines. 
So you get a bunch of people from 55 different disciplines or whatever, and they don't speak the same language. And so you don't really have a university, right? You have a multiversity. I didn't make that up. I forget mm-hmm. where I got that term from. But the Christian university at least has the chance of, of being an actual university unified around this central discipline that everybody speaks a little bit of. Um, and I, I think... Well, it's that shared narrative, right? Right. right. Yes. Yeah. So sh- our shared commitment, if you want to think about it that way, our mm-hmm. shared thing we all love. Um, and, and so there can be, at least in theory, a kind of unity to the Christian university that you you can't really find other places. Now, I don't know how many Christian universities actually measure up to that because I think in a lot of cases, and I'm not going to mention any names, and I'm not even really thinking specifically of Crown here just to get that out of the way. I think a lot of times Christian universities are just kind of chasing whatever the secular trends were uh, a few years earlier. Um, And so Mm -hmm. I, I don't know that the reality of Christian universities really lives up to that. But I think that's the possibility of Christian universities. And that's why it's so frustrating when you see, oh, you know, very large uh, Christian universities in Virginia being run by completely uh, unchristian principles. So uh, it's, you know, it's interesting to think now from, from from the place that you're sitting, you haven't been in Christian higher ed for so long, but now being out of it for a year, when you look back and reflect back, what do you think are some of the biggest problems with Christian higher ed in general that's causing it to to flounder a bit as of late. I think it's floundering because higher ed in general is floundering. I, I, I you know, it, I think it's it's fairly well known at this point. There's about to be a baby bust in terms of people entering college. I think 2025 is the mm-hmm. death year where the the number of mm-hmm. students who are alive to enroll drops precipitously. That's mm-hmm. a big problem. You have an overall crisis of education where we don't know what it means. We see it as just kind of sort of a certificate, but increasingly people are understanding that you don't actually need the certificate to actually do any of the jobs you supposedly need the certificate to do, right? Or there are other certificates that are less costly, that are more, you know, niche, more focused, right? Right. Right. Um, also, I think in, in higher ed in particular, there's a kind of anti-conservative bias that gets overplayed sometimes by conservatives, but is nevertheless mm-hmm. real. I, I remember I applied for a job at King College, which is a Presbyterian USA. It's a mainline Protestant school in, in Eastern Tennessee. And they screwed up when they sent out the email saying I didn't get the job and they sent it to all the candidates at once. Oh, no way. But then I was treated to about 800 emails of these people emailing back and forth saying how they didn't think that Christian higher education could even exist. And it's just indoctrination, blah, blah, blah. They're like the most self-righteous, uninformed opinions about the subject you could possibly have. So I I do think that bias exists. And I, 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 I think that most people who teach at Christian colleges have trouble are going to have trouble finding jobs at non-Christian colleges. It, it, it's just, there is, a, there is a tendency to look down on that stuff. So anyway, there's all these cultural forces at work and Christian higher ed is kind of the canary in the coal mine to some extent. Like it, it is less financially stable. And so it's going to fall apart before regular higher ed falls apart. But I suspect regular higher ed ain't far behind. You know what I mean? It's interesting though, because when we had to go to virtual learning in the, in the spring, one thing I'd, I'd wondered about internally and inside myself was, is this going to lead people to say, you know, this isn't so bad after all. And do I really need to pay all that money to go on a campus and to live on a campus? And there's been so much talk about the problems with how much education costs these days. And Christian higher ed is certainly not um, uh, exempt from that. But what was interesting was that seemed that the feedback from the students was quite the opposite and that they all were like, mm-hmm. this stinks. I didn't sign up for virtual learning and I want to go back to campus. So it made me wonder that about the campus experience and what students are getting from that and not just 
in Christian higher ed, but maybe just in general, if there's more to it than we've realized, and if that might help save mm-hmm. it in some ways, if it can be salvaged properly. <laughs> I, mean, I, I think part of what I love about the campus environment. And so for me, like my, my interest in education is that I love these developmental processes, right? That you get to guide people through mm-hmm. and having a few years to do that is wonderful. Mm-hmm. And you don't always get that, but I, I think there's something about the face-to-face element of that, the being, you know, sharing space, developing culture, create co-creating culture, co-creating spaces with people that is, I don't know, it it seems like you're able to do that in a face-to-face environment in a way that is different. I think online education, you know, those kinds of things probably have their place, right? Like they can be really good, but they do something different. Mm-hmm. And there's something specific and, and unique that comes out of that. And I think one of the biggest things, uh, you know, for many of our students, their several years on campus is the most diverse experience they've had in their life up to that point, regardless of what background they and come Crown's from. a remarkably diverse mm-hmm. campus. Among the students, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, among the students. And so I, I think there is something in my mind, like I, I have trouble imagining what is a suitable alternative to accomplish some of those developmental outcomes. I don't like the word outcomes because of what it means in higher ed. Uh, you know, but to accomplish some of those developmental goals, to walk through those with people. I, I see some distributed learning things starting to happen that maybe can, can do some of that as well. I don't know. I, I think one of the things you get at a place like Crown where, you know, often you're the only professor in your mm-hmm. department Uh, the only full-time professor in your department, is students take eight or nine classes with you and it ends up being less of a teacher-student relationship and more of like, more of like they're learning to be a blacksmith or something. Yeah, an apprenticeship. Apprenticeship, that's the word I was trying to come up with. And and so I, I wonder if, frankly, apprenticeships wouldn't be a better way to do some of the job training that that college is supposed to accomplish in the first place. Yeah, it's interesting. We're going to have a chance, I think, hopefully next week to talk with my PhD advisor who's got some ideas about higher ed. And, and one of his, his thoughts was along the lines of accrediting professors rather than schools. That's how they did it in the Middle Ages, I think. Well, maybe that's where he's getting it from. He's done his history. In some ways, it, it kind of could fit in line with what you're talking about. This idea of an apprenticeship is if you kind of, if it focuses a little bit more more on the professor and their expertise kind of taking people under their wing. Um, he has all sorts of other reasons, I think, for that, but I'll, I'll let him speak on it, I think, if we have a chance to talk to him about it. But it's just something interesting that's been on my mind a little bit as you're talking about this relationship between profs and students at, at Christian schools or Christian higher ed, especially because a lot of the Christian higher ed schools that aren't the, the real huge ones, they, they probably have that tendency, right? where there's just not that many professors mm-hmm. working within a department and there's not um, students who are taking, I mean, there are students who are taking several, several classes. Did you say you had potentially nine classes with the student? Yeah, wow. I think, I think I had students, I had eight or nine classes. Yeah, with remember I taught, I taught honors and I taught the philosophy class as well. So I would say probably most of the English majors took at least six or seven classes with me and some of them took eight or nine. Which in one hand is a liability, right? Because they're only right. getting yeah. one perspective, and and my perspective is admittedly limited. But uh, on the other hand, it, it really is great for that kind of long term growth relationship that that Stephen was talking about mm-hmm. a moment ago. It, it does it it raises the stakes, right? If it's just 
you or if it's, you know, if there's some kind of accredited professor kind of an option, it raises the stakes for that person. But I think to me, that seems better when we reduce education to content delivery Mm -hmm. and to certification. I, I don't know, like, again, there are certain places in society and in a person's life where that's the best thing, you know, where they just, they just need some additional content or they just need, you know, to get this information so they can move on into the next stage, whatever that is. But there's something so much deeper that can happen when, when we're not just about content delivery. I think that's one of my biggest concerns is if what we have goes away. Well, I guess I have two concerns. If what we have gets reduced to mere content delivery and, you know, basically checklists of, did you accomplish this content? Then we shouldn't continue that. I don't think that's worth having. And and then I'm also concerned if what we have goes away, you know, how do we recreate something, you know? Because mm-hmm. I think as much as it could always happen better, there is a lot of that that's happening in environments like ground, those uh, apprenticeship type developmental processes. Well, Michael, didn't you have a tweet recently uh, that said something along the lines of dreaming of a different Christian higher ed? Well, I think the tweet is much more cynical and much less optimistic <laughs> than, you're, than you're remembering it. Uh, <laughs> I, we, we took it as an invitation to, uh, to dream. It was not. <laughs> no, that, that tweet, I think it's something like, uh, can somebody open a Christian liberal arts school for those of us who've been alienated by other Christian liberal arts schools? Yeah, something Why like didn't that. you say, like, contact me when you've got it? Or No, it wasn't maybe that was exact lines, but I got this sentiment of like, hey, I'm on board when it, when it exists kind of thing. <laughs> but that, to me, that's part of the interesting thought, though, too, is, uh, you know, now, again, reflecting back on your experience, do you, if you had sort of this dream vision of helping to correct some of the things that you look back on with some frustration in Christian higher ed, do you, do you have some idea of what that might look like? Uh, I'm asking this big of you, and like you said, you're you maybe a little more pessimistic than optimistic, but uh, let's force you into the optimism for a minute. <laughs> well, and, and the truth is, I, I think I said this in that, in that tweet storm too, which is that I'm, I'm not a visionary. Mm. Like I don't, I don't know what Christian colleges could do to save themselves. I really don't. I wish somebody would. I, I wish, I think what you need is, is administrative who dream big and mm-hmm. I, I, for whatever reason in in this country in this society in this world that's not what administrators do but i i don't know i, I if i could restructure society i would probably get rid of all pre-professional programs from colleges and and move those to a kind of um apprenticeship program most of them i think would probably be better served by being apprentices and then return to a kind of medieval tutorage mm-hmm. um structure but i don't know that i could then convince 21st century americans oh you should go to college and be tutored by the 21st century equivalent of thomas Aquinas. <laughs> you, you know yeah. what i mean like so, so so that's how i would structure it but i don't know that i could make that saleable to to the to people who are actually paying the mm. bills so so here's a question because i think it's the most natural way that we look at that is at the individual level like is that worth it to me but i'm curious like what would society gain in your mind yeah see and, and here I, I i don't want to claim too much you know yeah. i don't want to i don't want to make it sound like things would be perfect but i i think things would things would be better in actual concrete ways if people thought less about use value and thought more about 
in, in, you know, intrinsic, the intrinsic value of things. And I, I think the, the vision of education that the three of us have been articulating tonight, I think that that's kind of what we're getting at, right? That this is about seeing things as they are and loving them for what they are rather than seeing them as a means to an end. And I, mm-hmm. I, I just, I think, I think one of the problems with contemporary society is that we we have lost or losing our ability to see things in terms other than immediate, which is why I'm uncomfortable even with the question, like, what value does education have? <laughs> it's not a value you can really put into words, you know? It's, it's something intrinsic to it. It's the way you're a different person on the other side of it. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's the thing I miss most. And that's the, the brilliance of doing college with 18 to 22-year-olds. It wasn't always like that, right? People used to go to college when they were 12. Um, but, like, 18 to 22 is such a great age because they go home at the end of their sophomore year, children, and they come back at the beginning of their junior year, adults. Mm. I, I saw it happen over and over and over again. There's something mm. about that that change from 19 to 20 or from 20 to 21. Like they they grow up, they become a real person. And like you're partially responsible for that. And it's such a cool feeling. Mm. And I, I I don't know that I don't know that if you look at education as being primarily about preparing them to get some job that probably isn't going to exist 10 years from now anyway. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that that experience even makes sense. You can't put that on your outcomes assessment. Student will become a real person. (laughs) (laughs) So there was another uh, tweet that... Oh, Lord. (laughs) (laughs) It it had to do with robots. I'll just leave it there. And um, one of the things that was... One of the things I've been thinking a lot about is this question of... and, and, And probably Thomas Friedman sets it up, tees it up well in his book. Thank you for being late. Uh, But this, you know, if we're in an age of accelerating changes, uh, and and he said that one of the things is that it's not just that things are changing, it's that change itself is changing. Um, And if we're moving toward more and more automation, and if we're moving toward uh, programs that write themselves, right, that's already happened. There have been a couple copyrighted in the last year. and, And we take all these things that we have traditionally used to say, okay, this is what it means to be human kind of functionally. And those things kind of get stripped away. It seems like we need to be able to reason more deeply, not less deeply, like that, that we need to not outsource that. And, and I don't know exactly where higher ed fits in that, but I think at its best, that's one of the things that higher ed does is helps us, like you said, to see, things as they are. Mm-hmm. And, but I guess that if you really want to see things as they are, it, that goes really, really far. Right. So what is the human as the human is, right? What is goodness as goodness is like, and, and those are questions that if we don't think about and we just do things because we pragmatically can, I don't know, like that seems very frightening to me. Well, and and, I mean, another advantage of Christian higher ed is that Christianity believes there is such a thing as the human. It believes there's such a thing as goodness and truth and beauty. Like these are real things. I mean, whether, whether you're a metaphysical realist or not, I think Christians tend to at least pretend to believe those things. Whereas increasingly the, the ideology kind of running secular education, whether it's critical theory or whether it's, you know, the, the business school running everything, don't believe in those things. And maybe the problem, maybe one problem anyway with Christian higher ed as it stands is that so many, so many people involved in it act like those things aren't real. 
you know, that the, they, they, they have this vision of the human, but they run their school as if they didn't. So what would it mean to have a school run on Christian anthropology in the, in the kind of philosophical sense mm-hmm. of that? Mm-hmm. I don't know. But I, I don't know that it would look very much like what, um, what state universities look like. In fact, I'm, I'm reasonably certain it wouldn't. And I don't think it would look like that and then add a chapel requirement. <laughs> or a community <laughs> you know, which covenant. Is, which is, right. I, and, you know, and those, aren't, those things aren't bad, you know. But in, in some ways, I think maybe the Christian university would be better off if it looked like a medieval monastery, mm-hmm. um, which is a very different sort of thing that would never, ever, ever fly at an actual Christian university because the students would, I don't think most students would be willing to submit themselves to that sort of discipline. Although, well, have you guys heard of Wyoming Catholic College? No. no. There was an article in America Magazine last year about them. The, uh, the entire freshman class comes in and on the first day hands over their cell phones and they don't get them back until the end of the semester. Wow. The first two weeks of your freshman year there, you just go out into the woods with your tutor and you live there for two weeks and talk about ideas. And I I think maybe I, I couldn't live in the woods for two weeks and I don't know that I would want to be without a cell phone, but maybe that's part of the problem. I think in some ways they're trying to reinvent what a Christian education looks like Mm -hmm. and the fact that we all look at them and say that's bizarre weird people weird people go to that school i I think that might be a sign they're doing it right that sort of thing was something i began to think about a little bit when i was in seminary because i started reading bonhoeffer and his life together as i was working through the course on that and and the professor started to contextualize bonhoeffer's writing of life together in the midst of running the illegal seminary in finkenwalde in germany at the time it it brought a lot of thoughts to me as to like the kind of thing that he was doing is kind of what you're talking about, but it was built off of this deeply historical reality and necessity that we don't often feel the pressures of right in the Mm -hmm. modern world. But I mean, they were doing, they were Lutherans doing confession to one another in ways that made all of the Lutheran you know, ordinance uh, uncomfortable because it felt too Catholic for them. But Bonhoeffer saw it as this sort of communally forming important life-giving exercise. And and so I started to think a little bit about that in seminary, like, man, there's things that he was doing with his, uh, with these pastors or, or soon to be pastors of the confessing church. That was that immersive experience that took it beyond just like, we need a certificate so we can go work in some churches when we're done. You know, so like, I mean, is that actually maybe possible? Uh, we don't have the same historical realities, but you talked about Wyoming Catholic doing it. I mean, is that really a dream that should die or is that something we should strive towards? I mean, I think it might be a possibility still. I don't know. <laughs> maybe we're shooting for the moon here. Well, and because our circumstances are different than theirs, it would look different, yeah. right? I mean, mm-hmm. what what we what we would be called to do would not be identical to what they were called to no. do. It, it, it's kind of a matter of holding the times in one hand and eternal Christian commitments in the other and saying, well, here is what this thing demands of us during this mm. thing. Yeah, that's true. Uh, again, that's going to make outcomes assessments. <laughs> <laughs> and things like accreditation, you know, and, and all of that, that's, you know, that, that's something that's interesting to think about because there's all this organizational structure that, that necessitates running that sort of thing. But in some ways, 
like maybe a, a pure Christian education would require having to set some of that aside and, and, and doing a more of a new monastic like community. I mean, I think that was actually even Bonhoeffer's words, a new monasticism is what he was said was necessary. And it's interesting because the way that you were painting the, the Wyoming Catholic University's situation sounded to me like that, right? It sounded like the sense of like, you're entering into this very dedicated phase of your life where you are going to set aside things that are of convenience and that are they are going to get in the way of your being educated in this way. And we certainly don't have that in our modern colleges or universities in any sense. I mean, our students are texting each other and shooting off tweets and Instagram. Well, maybe not Instagrams, maybe Instagrams in the middle of class. <laughs> right. Can I ask you, Michael, like, uh, what has it been like for you changing careers at this stage in your life? It's not an uncommon thing. I mean, I think we've heard statistics thrown around about how many times people change careers in, in their lives, but, um, what's it like in this stage of your life, you know, having to change careers? Yeah, I'm, I'm 38. I was 37 when I quit. Mm -hmm. So that those are, those are maybe helpful numbers to your list. I did not think it was going to be as hard to get a job as it was. Cause I mean, when I went on the job market, it was like historically low unemployment. Obviously that's no longer true. And I, I mean, I must've applied for 75 different jobs. And I, I applied mostly for either writing things or editing things or like corporate training positions. Cause you know, I, I won awards as a teacher. I thought, well, I sh surely I'll be able to get uh, something doing that. And I ended up being glad I, I didn't get those because those are apparently the first jobs to, to get axed oh. during a recession. Mm -hmm. So what ended up happening was my father um, is training me to do what he does. He's a civil engineer and he's training me to be a design drafter. Mm. So not to do the actual engineering calculations, but to do the kind of drawing mm -hmm. part of it, which is cool. I mean, it's learning a trade. And, and obviously, if I was going to switch careers, what I needed was someone to take a chance on me, mm. you know, to understand that I haven't done whatever it is I'm doing before. And I need a little bit of grace period. But it has been very frustrating because I was once again not to not not to sound too arrogant but i was once very good at my job and, and, and now you were I'm, like i mean as as a former colleague that's true <laughs> <laughs> yeah but but now now i'm kind of mediocre to bad at my job you mm -hmm. know and i'm getting better i'm learning but it, it's that's been very hard and probably honestly good for me for some of the same reasons that i went into mm -hmm. in two forms of despair you know because there's a, there's a, a real amount of ego involved in being good at something and mm -hmm. sometimes maybe what we need is to be bad at something <laughs> but I, I mean, I've been very thankful for it because the recession, the COVID hasn't hurt our business. Uh, my, my father owns the company. And so I, I, my job is relatively secure. And it wouldn't have been probably if I'd gotten one of those other jobs that I was more qualified for. But still, you know, I three or four times a week, I think, oh, man, I wish I could go back and teach. Mm. But I, I just I don't think that's really going to be a possibility for me. And that's OK, you know, kind of. Why not a possibility? I, I just, I, you know, I just don't think higher ed has that much of a future in this country. And then you, you add, add to it the fact that what I do in terms of English is fairly old fashioned and English is one of the more politically progressive disciplines on a college campus. And I, I'm wildly out of fashion. I, I applied for many, many academic positions when I was at Crown, probably, probably a hundred of them or more. And toward the end, it became clear that when they were posting for a American lit person, what they were really looking for was a person with a politi particular political program. Yeah. And, I mm -hmm. mean, you guys know me, I'm not 
I'm not a Republican. I'm, I, at, at Crown, I think I was, I was considered fairly progressive. But um, the way I approach the whole thing is, is not what I think most places are looking for. And now that I've been out of it for a year, year and a half, um, I, I don't know that anybody would let me get back in. If I had the opportunity to, I probably would take it though. And maybe I'm just being down on it. You know, I don't know. Maybe I'm trying to justify my own inadequacies by blaming the system. <laughs> it sounds like there was a certain sense where you maybe saw the writing on the wall, not not for your own job, um, but just for higher ed in general. And that concerned you enough to wonder if it was maybe time for a change. That is correct. I, I think I could have stayed at Crown for a long time. I don't think they would have fired me. Hmm. Um, I, I think I could have stayed. And who knows, that school has survived a lot worse than what they're going through right now. Like, yeah, that's for sure. has been on the verge of closing since 1916, and they always pull it out. So there, there's, something, <laughs> there's something miraculous about that weird little place. Um, but I, 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 just, I just felt like the whole industry is coming down and, and, you know, watching what's happening. I, I saw online the other day that um, CCCU schools have cut 230 faculty positions this year. Wow. That's what, 115 schools, 230 positions. Wow. And the, the thing that pushed me over the edge, that, that tweet that you um, quoted was a reference to Jeff Bilbrow from the Front Porch Republic being fired by Spring Arbor University. And Jeff mm. is like the sort of professor that a school that size should just be begging to stay. Like they should, they should give him anything he wants and Man. instead they fired him. If his job's not secure, I don't see how anybody's is. And I hate that. Like that's that's terrible. Like I, I would I would I would love I would love for someone to find some way to keep Christian colleges open. I want that to happen. And you know the one little bit of hope I have is you guys were at Crown when I brought John Mark Reynolds in mm-hmm. from uh, the Const- the St. Constantine School, and I I think that 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 is a model for how to keep things alive. It's a kindergarten through college model. They have no campus, so there's no dorms or anything, so they keep prices low. They have no administrators. Every single person who works at that school teaches, including the janitor. Wow. And, you know, they're they're led by someone, John Mark Reynolds, who who legitimately is a visionary. And and so maybe that model can can keep things alive. It's it's called the St. Constantine School because his his idea, you know, he's Eastern Orthodox, the Romans don't consider Constantine a saint, uh, but Constantine saved Rome by leaving Rome. And and so I think that's what John Mark thinks he's doing with the St. Constantine school is he's saving higher ed by making a lateral move from higher ed because it, it's K through college. So you can start at kindergarten and go all the way through and get a college degree. Wow. Like $10,000 a year. Huh. Maybe it's lower than that. I don't know. But right now there's just the one in Houston. I'll tell you this, if he opened one in Atlanta, I would, I would line up out front to, to teach there. Huh. That's there's a seems to be this conundrum though with higher ed where the costs are so expensive. And yet I, I have friends who have kind of reflected back on their college experience and said, man, it, college is stupid. It's meaningless. It's, it's too much money. And I get a degree in something that I don't end up going and working in. So why don't we just have all like trade schools essentially? Right. But, but then what I, I was realizing as I was like, well, I've had friends and family members though, who don't have college educations and they go out into the world and they try to get jobs that are not in trades and they have no shot. Like their, their applications aren't even getting looked at. So somehow we're in this spot where like the cost of education is still so outrageously high. And yet it is the bare minimum requirement. Some people need to just get their application on the table for a job. 
my sister, when she was in college, went and applied to be a bank teller, and they wouldn't look at it, look at her application without a bachelor's degree. Now, no offense to bank tellers, but why on earth would you need a bachelor's degree to do that job? Exactly. A, a reasonably intelligent person can do that job, whether they have whether they have yeah. taken English 101 or not. I would think. I, mean, I wonder if if businesses or, or companies and you name it are are basically saying, and maybe this is just optimistic of me, basically just saying, if you have a college degree, you you have had to go through a certain process that tells us that you can navigate that. <laughs> yes, I, I, think, I think that's part of it. But of course, the end result of that is it dumbs down that process. It does. Yeah, it definitely does. But so, so on the one hand, it, the conundrum is, is that people can't afford to go to college and colleges are struggling. On the other hand, people can't afford to not go to college unless they're going to go into a very specific trade of which they learn at a trade school, uh, or, or they're going to end up working a job for 12 bucks an hour for the rest of their life. Um, so, so that's the conundrum, isn't it? It's like, so I, I don't know if, higher ed in general is as doomed maybe as some think, but I just don't know how to get out of that conundrum. Well, I I think, I think you've articulated very nicely the reason why people want free college tuition. And if you, if you Mm -hmm. see college as primarily a pathway to getting a a decent job, it kind of is immoral to not have free college tuition, right? Mm -hmm. Even though having free college tuition for public schools would pretty much kill all but the most elite private schools, you know, Harvard's not mm-hmm. going to be destroyed by that, but I don't see how somewhere like Crown survives just because if it's free to go to the university, why mm-hmm. would you Why would you pay 20000 to go to Crown or however much they charge now? Mm-hmm. So here's a political conundrum Steve and I have talked about. Um, it, there, was, there seemed to be a lot of discussion around academic institutions uh, on the last election, and it wasn't so much about all these political nuances as much as it was, if you vote for this person, then we're doomed. Or if you vote for this person, we're going to be saved. In other words, there was this projection, certainly in Christian higher ed, that one of the candidates is going to help our cause and one of them isn't. But what if you start to realize, this is something Steve and I have kind of reflected on, what, what if you start to realize that... We had, a, we had a whole class where we were wrestling with this kind of stuff. Yeah. Oh man, I wish I could have taken that class. What if you start to realize that the ethical thing to do is the thing that might actually bury your own profession. Yeah. This is something I'm not saying I I knew what was the ethical thing to do, but it was something I was wondering about. Like what if providing education for everybody for free is the ethical thing to do, but it buries my life as I know it as a professor in Christian higher ed. Do I then support that movement? There's a certain Christ likeness in that, isn't there? (laughs) Unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Who who didn't consider equality with God, a thing to be grasped, right? (laughs) Oh man. You know, you can think of several passages, right? But you know, that, that is that conundrum. So I I don't know. You have thoughts on that. Like, I mean, you're, you're, you're out of it now, but like in the sense that you, you don't have the, the job on the line, but you know, uh, what what do you what do you process? I mean, you you were part of that. I mean, you were living in that environment in the last election, though, right? You yeah. heard similar <laughs> things, right? Yeah, I did. I yeah. I, I mean, I think there are there are reasons to not want free tuition that are um, that are not merely about saving jobs at Christian colleges. I sure. think. I I I I I think there are there are things you'd really lose. You would you would get a kind of homogeneous education. I, I is is my concern with that. 
and, and then there's questions about whether students would have a commitment level. If there's no cost to them, will they? Do they have will a they, commitment level now? I mean, uh, um, it's a good question. <laughs> Some of them do, but. It's a good question. Um, you know, because I guess if my theory were right, then a place like Crown would mean we have the most committed students because we don't have a ton of students at Crown that I'm aware of that are getting a full ride from their parents or from anywhere else. So well, you would the think... The one student I knew who was was one of the best students I've ever had. Well, well geez, so that, that blows my theory to smithereens because what I was going to say is I guess the theory is that if you have to pay for your own education, you have ownership of it. But, you know, maybe that's not necessarily the case. But Canada might be a good place to look because Canada's got... Um, it's not free, but it's, it's you know, heavily funded. And they hmm. still have some Christian colleges, uh, oh, Trinity Western yeah. and... Re- Deemer, is that the name of it? And St. Michael's at the University of Toronto. So there must must be a way to do it, but I don't know that, I don't know that the people who are pushing for free post-secondary education in this country are going to be the people who stand up for Christian colleges. I mean, this is one of the problems with the weird splits that our political parties take, where if, you know, if you're anti-abortion, you also have to hate the environment and be okay with... Uh, with deregulating the oil industry. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, there's no reason that should be, just like there's no reason that you should be both for Christian colleges and against mm. um, subsidized tuition. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, it's it's really irritating, yeah. actually. <laughs> well, and, and unfortunately, Stephen, if the last four years haven't done anything to dissociate people from the two major parties, nothing's going to. Right, yeah. Do you have anything you wanted to add? Uh, I don't think so. I think that works. Cool. Cool. Yep. I'm turning my fan back on. (laughs) (laughs) Still hot in here. At least it's cooler today. I know. Yeah, I got Romans coming up here too in a bit, so get ready for that. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for making this work. No problem. Uh, All right. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.